Open your Bibles with me to Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. Passage that we read last Sunday, and we read the Sunday before that. You may think that I got stuck on it. Well, I guess we kind of are stuck on it. There are some things that we need to bring out that it introduces in a subtle way that we might be able to identify God's plan for us, His purpose for us as well. I heard about the preacher that went to a new congregation and as he began his tenure there as pastor, uh, the second Sunday, the congregation was a bit surprised to hear he preached the same sermon he preached the first Sunday. That was true also on the third Sunday. And again on the fourth and on the fifth Sunday, he preached the same sermon. So the deacons decided they needed to chat with him, and one of them said to him, that's a Mighty fine sermon you've got there, preacher, but we were wondering if you had any others. And he said, yes, I do. And they said, well, do you think you could tell us when you might preach one of them? He said, just as soon as you start doing this one. So sometimes we have to park (laughs) to drive home the point. Last week, we reviewed this verse that says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but He is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come <clears throat> excuse me, to repentance. <clears throat> we followed the study of verses 7, 8, and 9 last week with just a reference again to verse 9 concerning the purpose, the willingness on the part of God that none should perish, but He purposed a means by which all could come to repentance. In our review last week, we identified three memorial rituals that are given to the church that illustrate God's plan of grace. This week I want to follow up with that, a second addendum to that same passage, reminding you of what we studied last time to set the groundwork for this time. You'll find some of that repetitious from last Sunday's study guide, I hope you picked up on that. I'm not going to assume that you did, but I would hope that you picked up on it. It's for a purpose. Repetition brings retention. Now, I can't give you a biblical passage for that. That's Welch 3.2. But repetition brings that retention that we need and it was needed I thought to set the stage for this second ritual we introduced the ritual of baptism last week and we're looking at the ritual this week of the confession of sin 
and the memorial ritual that establishes that, the Lord's Supper. And so I have prepared the cup and the bread this morning that we might be able to review what God set up for us through our Lord Jesus Christ and then to memorialize that in this memorial or ritual that He established. The Mosaic Law that sets forth the basic doctrines of the Old Testament with all of its ceremonies, with all of its cleansings, with the feast days, uh, was a method that God used to reveal to us His plan of redemption for the fallen race, for sinful mankind. The ritual of the law, along with the commandments, revealed just how sinful man is uh, compared to a holy and a righteous God, and illustrated the provision of that redemption for us through the fulfillment of the virgin birth, the sinless life, the sacrificial death, the victorious resurrection, the glorious ascension, the present intercession, and of course the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Mosaic Law, with all of its rituals, revealed the various aspects of God's amazing grace. The commandments that began with thou shalt or thou shalt not were there to reveal to us man's sinfulness compared to the holiness of God. The ritual declared God's grace plan that would enable sinful man to be declared holy and without blame before God in order that man could have a relationship with God. The grace of God is truly the amazing grace. The word grace we saw in our study last time is a translation of the Greek word charis, which means for one person to assume all of the responsibility and all of the expense or cost for another person. God has certainly treated us in grace because He assumed all of the responsibility and all of the expense or the cost that we might be redeemed and have an eternal relationship with Him. That redemption and the plan of grace was necessitated because we were born in sin. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 17, a brief review of what we explored through verse 21 last week, simply says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin's not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, 
even over them that had not sinned after the same similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift, for if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. We saw in our study in Second Peter 3.9 that God did not develop a purpose or a plan that would eliminate anyone, but that all could come to repentance. Our expanded translation based on the grammar of a verse 9 of chapter 3 of Second Peter said, The Lord is not continually slow concerning the promise as some men continually consider slowness, but keeps on having long patience unto you as a matter of principle and purposing that any should make it their purpose, but that all should make it their purpose to come into a change of life. God's plan has prepared man for the plan of grace, a plan of redemption, so that the sinner might be called saint. And it was a plan whereby God Himself would accept all of the responsibility and all of the expense, all of the cost to deliver us from ourselves and our sin. This plan of grace meets man's need in three areas. Salvation, living the Christian life day by day, and then providing for us in eternity. For salvation, we define the word G-R-A-C-E by using the letters to form an acrostic, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. That's what the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation that God has ministered grace to us, giving us His righteousness at the expense of Jesus Christ that we might have life eternal. For living the Christian life, He gives more grace so that we have God's resources at Christ's expense in order to live life day by day. And then for eternity, we have God's realm at Christ's expense. God revealed His plan for mankind in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Before He sent the Redeemer, He revealed His plan, and then 
after sending the Redeemer, He explains and illustrates His plan. At the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, God informed Satan and Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would triumph over man. That it would be through the seed of the woman that redemption for the human race would be found. The Old Testament revealed that plan and the New Testament records the plan. The Old Testament revealed the plan of grace in the ritual of the law and confirmed it then through the Old Testament prophets as well. Last week we looked at the basics of the Old Testament theology as it was revealed to us with five daily offerings. Three of those offerings told us about the Messiah that would come, that would redeem us from sin, with His physical death, with His spiritual death, and with His reconciliation between us and God. We looked at the seven annual feasts of Israel that set up the timetable for the outline of the plan of God. And all four of the first four of those seven feasts were fulfilled in the first advent of Christ. He died on the day of the preparation for the Passover to become the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was raised from the dead on the feast of first fruits to become the first fruits of the dead. He began the church on the day of Pentecost to illustrate and identify your role and my role in this church age in our ministry. All of the provision that was made as he died upon the cross, his physical death, his spiritual death, Spiritual death means he was separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit during that period of some three hours upon the cross. And he provided not only for our salvation, but that we might be able to fellowship with him before we are transformed in our new bodies and uh, to be like him at the uh, coming of the rapture of the church. He will come and take us to be with Him as His bride. And uh, He will bring then the final tribulation and judgment upon this earth uh, before He brings us back as His bride and He establishes His millennial kingdom. The other ritual that we find uh, uh, and the ceremonies that we find throughout the Old Testament and their all kinds of washings and all kinds of purifications and all kinds of cleansings, all of those are part of the revelation of God's plan of grace. I'm especially fascinated by the offering of the red heifer There was set up for the children of Israel a designation by God that they were to select a specific red heifer and they were to sacrifice that heifer and to burn its body and the ashes were to be deposited outside the camp. And when a person committed sin, 
they were to go out and they were to use those ashes as a means of their confession of sin. And that was a ritual that taught the principle of 1 John today. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. As we look at the ordinances relative to the sacrifices, for every sin there was a specified sacrifice. All of that pointed to the coming Messiah and is revealed in His person, in His character, and in the work that He did. Judges were sent and appointed by God that they might call attention and conformity to the plan of grace. And prophets were sent throughout the Old Testament to illustrate, to proclaim, to warn concerning the various aspects of God's plan of grace. So the Old Testament is a vital part of the Word of God as it reveals to us the person, the character, and the work of the coming Messiah. So that we might, in the New Testament, see the fulfillment of that in every detail and be able to understand He truly was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. The New Testament records the documentation for that. The Gospels record the coming of the Messiah. Matthew presented Him as a king. Mark presented Him as a servant. Luke presented Him as man. John presented Him as God. No contradictions between these four writers, but a complement to each other. The servant king, the God-man, found his purpose in being on the cross of Calvary and the empty tomb, and today is at the throne room of the Father interceding on our behalf. The book of Acts records the early church. The epistles Give us the doctrine, the instruction, the information, the interpretation of the old and of the instruction concerning our walk as sojourners in this earth today. The book of Revelation reveals to us the prophecy concerning God's time plan and how that is to be played out. The memorials <clears throat> excuse me, to the grace of God are everywhere from Genesis to Revelation, a revelation of the person, the character, and the work of the Messiah. We've seen leading up to the coming of the Messiah, they had all kinds of memorials, all kinds of rituals that were given to instruct them in the plan of grace. But now in the church age, those memorials, those rituals are no longer applicable to us, but there are three rituals that we find relative to the church, to you and I who live in this post-ascension period where Christ is at the throne room interceding on our behalf. We have three rituals that are identified by two memorials. Christ's reconciling reconciling work of grace is manifest 
in two spheres, salvation and fellowship. Remember under the daily offerings, three offerings taught salvation and the other two offerings taught fellowship. Salvation secures us and gives us grounded hope for eternity, but fellowship is the means that we are given to acquire His protection, His in His guidance, uh, and His empowerment to live the life that we've been called to live. We diagram those two spheres, salvation and fellowship, in a, a chart that we distributed last week that was that identifies uh, the cross and the two circles. The top circle illustrating our salvation in Christ. Uh, once and for all, illustrated by a dot and a circle around it to identify that once we are placed there by the Holy Spirit, at the moment we call upon the name of Jesus for salvation, once we are placed there, we are eternally secure in Him. We cannot get out, nor can we be expelled from that sphere. The preposition in the Greek language that identifies that, identifies a static position in Him. The bottom circle identifies our fellowship with God. We as sinful humans are able to have fellowship with a holy God because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the means by which we are able to acknowledge our failure, our sin, our rebellion, to acknowledge that and be immediately restored with the authority and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit places us in Christ and we have an eternal relationship, but at that same time He places us in fellowship with Him. But the Greek preposition there is not in a static position. It's ice identifying movement. We get in and out of fellowship with God. does not change our salvation, but breaks our fellowship with Him. And oh, by the way, can bring with it divine discipline. Because while God does not punish us for sins that we might commit because all of our sins are charged to Christ, we have a family relationship with the Father. And when we walk contrary to that which is designed for our greatest blessing, uh, He can and does bring discipline in our life. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says, if you're without chastisement, then are you illegitimate not genuine sons of God. God disciplines us. He brings some form of pain, loss, or suffering into our life to modify our behavior. Not to penalize us for what we've done. Christ paid for that. But to modify our behavior so we walk in a way that's more profitable to us. The connection and the distinction between salvation is one of the most important areas of Bible information and doctrine that we as believers can be exposed to. The writers of the New Testament 
address a variety of doctrinal issues, but frequently they take a little different approach and the Holy Spirit uses the vocabulary of that writer in addressing those issues. As a matter of fact, the Apostle John approaches the growth and the maturing process of spiritual development using the stage of infant and adolescent and young man and mature adult. While Peter approaches it in the development of seven specific spheres uh, that we are to develop. Within the sphere we are to develop virtue and when the sphere of virtue we are to develop knowledge and progressively it comes and culminates into sacrificial love identifying our maturity. Paul does not spell out the uh, various levels of maturity, but rather he alludes to them and in his writing he gives us the doctrinal foundation structure by which we are able to develop maturity. That on the foundation of God's Word and our personal trust in Him, we are to develop an orientation or an understanding of the doctrine of grace. And as we understand the doctrine of grace, we are then to develop a relaxed mental attitude. And in that relaxed mental attitude, we are able to develop a mastery over the details and the issues of life. And within that mastery of the details of life, we are able to develop self-sacrificial love. And within the sphere of that self-sacrificial love, we are able to experience inner happiness, the joy and the peace. And we have the promises of God over us, protecting us through all of that. Paul, in talking about the confession of sin, uses terms like yield, or put off the old man, or judging one's self. And so while last week we looked at the doctrine of baptism, I want us to look at the doctrine of confession of sin uh, briefly this morning before moving into the memorial that and ritual that uh, portrays that in the observance of the Lord's Supper. The thing we must remember is that when we call upon the name of Jesus for salvation, in that moment of time, that moment of time is taken out of time, divorced from time, and perpetuated forever. We are ever in fellowship with Him. No, because we still live in the flesh, we find that our fellowship gets interrupted. does not change our sonship, our being a child of God, but we need to confess our sin from time to time, I should say from sin to sin, in order that we might have the kind of fellowship with Him that would enable the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in our life. Confession is not the basis of salvation. Jesus Christ was judged once and for all 
for all our sin, judged on the cross. He does not need to repeatedly go back and be judged and pay our debt again. He paid it in full. So the basis of our salvation is to trust Jesus Christ and His work rather than confession or some other act or baptism. That simply is an outward testimony that we have called upon the name of the Lord for salvation. The word confess in 1 John 1.9 is the Greek verb, verb homologomen. This word, and the very derivatives of it, is a very common word in ancient Greek and in Hellenic speech. In the Septuagint Greek of the Old Testament and in the Koine Greek, it means literally to say the same thing, to be in agreement in a statement. The Greek philosophers and historians use this word in many different instances to identify the speaking the same language, to identify the same circumstance and the attitude. A a review of the usages uh, uh, in uh, antiquity uh, indicate there are a number of such divining statements that are given to identify this word homologomen. It in some writing means to agree to the statement of another, to confirm the receipt of money. It's used to agree to a proposal, to agree to or to accept a promise to agree with or to adopt a social custom. Throughout Greek language, we are able to find those usages of the word. And so in the Christian life, confession of sin is based on an established agreement and personal acceptance of God's divine sovereignty, which includes, of course, his right as Creator and Father to set standards uh, by which the Christian must live. Standards that are not designed to give God any glory or honor, but standards that are designed to give us the greatest profit in living life, the greatest blessings in living life. A new believer may not be aware of the distinction between salvation and fellowship, or even that it's possible to get out of fellowship, and so he needs uh, to confess sin. And so the Scripture has given us detail concerning that. First John chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, Second Peter 1, 9, uh, as a matter of fact, It's one of the most neglected doctrines in the church age to understand the need for confession of sin. If we're not careful, we equate it to the Roman Catholic practice of going to a priest and confessing, but we are believer priests as the Scripture identifies, and we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, and so it's not to go to 
another in some order of ecclesiastical standing, but between us and our Father, we are to acknowledge what we have done. God commands us to judge ourselves, and then we will not be judged. To judge ourselves means to confess our sin. Isaiah, in the Old Testament, taught this principle, and in uh, 1 Corinthians, in 1 John, in Philippians, uh, uh, we have the detail concerning it, and uh, certainly a proverb uh, uh, in the book of Proverbs. Any person that studies the Bible quickly becomes aware of God's intention for us. And some Christians willfully ignore the command to confess, resulting in God then having to use more pervasive, uh, uh, persuasive uh, uh, measures to of discipline to bring them into a line of conduct that's more profitable for them such as the lack of inner peace, chastening or discipline, loss, pain, loss, or suffering in some manner, uh, the pricking of the conscience, some being sorry for sin. The alternative to confession is to receive God's discipline. Hebrews chapter 12 sets forth the discipline principles of God, and some Christians are able to ignore even the most severe discipline for a long time, and that can ultimately lead to the, what the Bible identifies as the sin unto death. The sin unto death can only be committed by a believer, and it's not a specific sin. It's a pattern of sin in your life where you refuse to acknowledge your transgression and to receive the uh, empowerment of the Spirit in your daily walk and to live in such a way you do not live out your design, then there's no reason for God to leave you here. He leaves you here as a sojourner. If you're not going to sojourn, then He might as well take you home. Now somebody said, well, that can't be too bad. Uh, be taken to be with Him. Absent in the flesh is to be face to face with the Lord. The thing we need to note is that when that the sin unto death occurs, it indicate the scriptures indicate all of that person's reward is given to another person because they do not live out their design. All of their reward is given to another. Confession does not give you a license to sin. I've had individuals say, well, I'm glad to learn about 1 John 1, nine. Now I can go ahead and do what I want to do and then immediately confess it. Well, you can. Be prepared for some discipline. Even after you confess it, yes, the discipline can certainly continue because the discipline is not designed to be a punishment. The discipline is designed to change your behavior. To change your behavior so you walk in a way that is more profitable for you. The idea then that I can sin repeatedly because God will always forgive me is a sinful idea in itself because it indicates that the believer does not actually think 
the same thing that God does about sin. In our definition for confession, it's to acknowledge, to tell Him exactly what you did, but to have the same attitude about sin, that sin that He does. See, we don't believe all of the Word of God. We don't believe that God always has our best interest at heart or we would not sin. Our sin is a deliberate act to be independent on our own, to do it our way because we aren't agreeing with God about His way. And we open ourselves up then to divine discipline. We need to be careful through the process because we recognize that the Scripture teaches that we each as individuals have a most besetting sin. We have a pattern and it differs from individual to individual. The lust pattern can be defined in three areas. The lust of the flesh, which is the satisfying of the senses, the empirical senses, touch, taste, smell, hearing, or seeing. The lust of the eyes is material things, uh, an obsession with gaining material things. uh, And the pride of life is ego. We all have a different area of of lust pattern. It's, It's specialized to us. And by the way, the Bible teaches that it came through the male in propagation. So uh, we, as a result of Adam's sin, we have that propensity to sin. And it goes back through the, the males in our genealogy. Along with the uh, three areas of lust in which we find ourselves... Uh, uh, we have that most besetting sin, the the area of weakness, the specific thing that we repeatedly come back to God in confession of sin. One of the one of the benefits of the confession of sin is that we keep naming what we've done, and we become very conscious of what our weakness is. If you don't know what your area of weakness is, you haven't been confessing. You haven't been acknowledging the specific thing that you did because that identifies for us our area of weakness. Confession is the method of dealing with the broken fellowship that is caused by sin and it does not attribute any merit to accrue uh, through one's confession. Every time we sin, we are to acknowledge that to Him. First John 1 John 1.9 is the basic passage. It says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you confess it, you need to forget it. When you confess it, it is removed from you as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered by the Father again, and you are to forget it. Paul writes in Philippians 3.13 and 14, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, 
but this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Confess it, forget it, and isolate that sin. The writer of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 says, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby be defiled. As you review a sin that you've confessed, you just open the door to commit it again. Since prayer is to be addressed to God the Father, confession is made only to God the Father. And upon the condition of confession, forgiveness is guaranteed and our being cleansed from all unrighteousness is administered. The word cleanse refers to the removal of the guilt of sin. There are several synonyms in the Bible that are associated with the word confess. As I said, Paul liked the word yield. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto God, but yield yourselves unto God, that they that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. He says that you put off concerning the former way of life the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and that if we would judge ourselves, we then would not be judged. So he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Walking closer to God, is in reality an activity in which you are more consistent in your relationship with the Lord, more consistent in your confession of sin. And although the confession does not in itself cause you to grow spiritually, it's only when you are in fellowship with God that the Holy Spirit has control of your life and able to guide you. Confession places the believer back in the sphere of the Holy Spirit's control. And that's where you produce gold, silver, and precious stone. Outside of fellowship with God, your Christian labor is wood, hay, and stubble. As you learn more about the true doctrine of confession, you will see the increase in your discernment about your own status of fellowship and you'll know whether you're controlled by the Holy Spirit, and you'll know what to do about it when you're not. You'll learn to recognize carnality in others, but you'll be more tolerant of other people because you realize better your own outstanding relationship depends entirely on the grace of God. Baptism is the ritual or the symbol concerning salvation. And we looked at that last week. I want to draw our attention now to the Lord's Supper, which is God's memorial to fellowship. Fellowship between God and man required reconciliation. That reconciliation 
was made possible by the virgin birth, the sinless life, the sacrificial death, the victorious resurrection, the glorious ascension, the continuing intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is a memorial of His birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession, which makes possible our fellowship with the Holy God as we are in fellowship with Him declared to be holy and without blame. The two elements for the Lord's Supper is the bread and the cup. Both the bread and the cup are to be without leavening. Leavening is a biblical symbol of sin. And so the bread represents fellowship with God. Sinless fellowship with God is required by the unleavened bread. I've been in churches where they were observing this memorial and they pass around a loaf of French bread. Pinch off a piece. It's got leavening in it. The symbol of the sinlessness of Christ and the sinlessness that we can maintain with Him through confession of sin is lost in that symbol. I've been in churches where they used the wine instead of the grape juice. Well, the Bible talks about wine. And certainly wine was the common beverage at the time of Christ. But the thing they failed to recognize is it was the week in the preparation for Passover and the all leavening had to be removed from the home. No leavening was allowed during that week of unleavened bread that pointed to the fellowship that God would provide for sinful man to have a continuing fellowship with the Father. And so there was to be no leavening in the home. All the wine was boiled to get rid of the alcohol. We just cut out that process and simply used the unpermitted because it represents the sinless blood of Christ. I was invited to speak to a large youth assembly at a uh, Trinity Broadcasting uh, headquarters uh, in Santa Ana, California years ago and only invited once, but uh, I was invited. And they observed the Lord's Supper with crackers and Pepsi-Cola. The bread represents the sinless life of Jesus. The cup represents the sinless blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Crackers and Pepsi don't quite cut it in that situation. And so the bread represents the body of our Lord. Matthew tells us as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Mark records, And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them and said, Take, eat. This is my body. 
Luke records it, and he took bread and gave thanks, and brake it, and gave it unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Bread throughout history, all of literature represents fellowship. Fellowship with God because of the sinless life that Christ lived, credited to the account of each believer. Romans 4, 5 says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. The life that Jesus lived set an example for us to emulate, but met the standard that we refuse to meet. Someone says, well, we're not able to meet it. Now, after receiving Christ the Savior and being endowed with the Holy Spirit, no matter, uh, no longer a matter of our inability. We have the ability. We don't have the desire and the commitment to. The life that Jesus lived set for us an example and one that we should follow the standards, but we continually refuse to do that. The cup represents the blood of Christ, which was shed for us. Matthew 26, verse 27 says, And He took the cup and gave thanks and said to them, Drink ye all of it. Mark writes, And He took the cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And He said unto them, This is My blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Luke wrote, Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in My blood, which is shed for you. So man's redemption was purchased by the blood of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says it was neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Christ's blood is identified in the New Testament as the symbol of the testament or covenant that he has with man. For this is the blood of my testament which is shed for many and for the remission of sin. And Mark said, He said unto them, This is my blood of the new testament which is shed for many. Luke said, Likewise I also the cup after supper, saying, This cup the new test is the new testament in my blood which is shed for you. So the Lord's Supper is a memorial to show the Lord's death until He comes again. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 34 set for us the pattern of this observance. Paul writes, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He brake it and said, Take, eat, this is My body, which is, and the word broken is not in the text, it is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
Then he said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread, uh, eat this body, excuse me, eat of this bread and drink of this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Here's the instruction. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, carry one for another, and if any man's hungry, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation. And Paul said, the rest I'll set you in order when I come. So what are baptism typifies our salvation. The Lord's Supper typifies our fellowship with the Father. The Lord's baptism is one time. We are one time immersed to give testimony that we have received Christ as personal Savior. But we are repeatedly to observe this memorial that reminds us of our fellowship with God through our confession of sin. Now the Scripture says that some in the church at time Paul was writing had become physically ill because they ate of the bread and drank of the cup unworthily. He said that some had even died as a result of that. So what are the qualifying factors of unworthiness? The first is to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and then to be confessed up at the time we eat the bread and drink the cup. To confess any known sin. So it's proper that we take a few minutes before I pass the bread, and then pass the cup. That we, Though we began this at the beginning of service, you may have looked at the clock and the length of pages on the outline and gotten out of fellowship. And so there may be a need to get back in fellowship. So when we confess our sins, we're worthy. What about sins that we don't know about? Well, remember under the Levitical law, the sin offering was for, and the trespass offering uh, were to be observed every day. The trespass offering was for sins that you were aware of. The sin offering was for sins that you were not aware of. When we confess our known sins that we're aware of, we are not only forgiven of those sins, but cleansed of all unrighteousness, as First John 1 9. So take just a moment to reflect, and I will be around shortly then with the bread and the cup.